This is Big Talk. Michael Glab here. My guest this week in the studio, a poet and an environmental activist, Alex Chambers. Alex, thanks for being on Big Talk. So glad to be here. You're excited, I'm sure, because your first book of poetry coming out, it's being published uh, by Pickpocket Books. That's an imprint of Ledgemule Press. Uh, binding. A preparation. That's the title of it. Yeah. Why binding? Part of what it's about and what it's thinking about is what ties us together. Uh-huh. The way that we're all intertwined in various different ways. The book is about um, these moments of um, connection and also complication in relationships. The ways that, you know, you start a relationship and then you start to, like, you know, build a past together. Then things maybe get hard but you're still bound to each other in various different ways. Now, good old Dave Torneo mm-hmm. is the big boss over at Ledgemule he Press. Is. And I'm willing to bet he wrote this because uh, on their website, quote, in this book, you'll encounter the Deepwater Horizon oil spill, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, William Cullen Bryant, the NASDAQ, Karl Marx, Troy Davis, Mary Wollstonecraft, a chicken, a peach, and at least 46 different kinds of apples. <laughs> Who is Troy Davis? He was a man on death row in, I think it was Georgia, uh-huh. um, convicted, I think, for killing a police officer, uh-huh. um, and uh, was on death row. I'm pretty sure it might have been the Supreme Court that continued to want to go through with his uh, execution, although most of the witnesses um, had recanted huh. uh, from the case. So it was a pretty serious instance of injustice. Right. Um, he's mentioned sort of in passing in this, sort of, in this poem that's sort of a collection of a bunch of different things that are going on in the world. Apparently, you know a little bit about prison life, maybe a tiny little bit. You haven't been in prison. I, I, okay. <laughs> I've been in multiple prisons, actually, yeah. but, not, <laughs> but by cho- only by choice. We're going to go into that. Okay. All right. Great. All right. But... On a more pleasant note, there will be a book launch party December 14th. That's a Saturday evening, Mm -hmm. 7 p.m. at the good old Eiffel Gallery, the center of the arts universe, right there at 4th and Rogers. It's a good place to be. Um, Yeah, the book launch is, um, I think that's this Saturday, right? I believe Um, so. It's creeping (laughs) up It is this Saturday. It's going to be a lot of fun. Um, I'll read poems from this book. We'll have a bunch of other poets. Uh, local poets, Gabriel Peoples, Ross Gay. Oh, so it's a whole gang. Yeah, it'll uh, be a whole crew. They're to help you celebrate your first exactly. book. Mm-hmm. That's exciting. That's exciting. I'm when excited. you're writing poetry, do you think, uh, I'm going to put this in a compilation at some certain point? Or is that ever a thought? That was not a thought for me as I was writing these poems. I do think that some poets, and I could imagine working this way in the future, like have an idea for a longer project. Mm-hmm. So they write something and it sort of unfolds over time. With this book, I mean, these poems honestly were collected over, written over the, about 15 years. This uh-huh. is a long, I was like early also. I mean, this, this is a, many years of, um, of writing poems. And I worked for quite a while to sort of figure out how to arrange them and how to make it feel like 
they were coming together as a book. When you look at stuff that you did 15 years ago, <laughs> do you say, oh, my God, did I write that? Most of them. Hopefully um, all <laughs> the ones that I feel <laughs> – <laughs> um, hopefully all the ones that I feel that way about um, are not in this book. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> there are lots of, lots of other poems on my computer that hopefully will not see the light of day. 46 different kinds of apples. Uh, you, you have some mentions of, uh, of fruits from trees here. Yeah. You have imagery. You learned how to do some imagery. You got your master's in creative writing at the University of Alabama. Mm -hmm. Does this mean you did any work with uh, Indiana's very own Michael Martone? Michael Martone of Fort Wayne, Indiana. That's right. Yeah. I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I um, I worked with him. Um, I actually, he's the reason I went down to Alabama. No kidding. I was living here in Bloomington um, in the early 2000s and heard him read at the um, IU Writers Conference the summer ah. thing. And I thought, oh, I like that guy's work. Yeah. And so Alabama then became sort of a place on my radar. And I, so I checked it out. And um, it was, um, you know, I applied to a number of different programs. And that was the one that fit the best, partly because it was the only one I got into. Um, but it was a good place to be. Um, and, and he was great. Martone is like such a wonderful teacher and program director. Um, he used to say that he um, wanted to run the program in a sort of Montessori style, as if it was a Montessori <laughs> school. He wanted us all to really just sort of be able to experiment and play. And the point was to produce lots of work. It wasn't, he sort of would give us these assignments um, to try to show us that no piece of writing was completely bad in any uh -huh, way. Uh -huh. You know, he was like, bring in a piece of bad writing. So we would all ah. go and find bad writing and bring it in. And he would challenge us on why that was bad. And there would, you know, and it wasn't like, oh, there's this beautiful, you know, image or something. But it was like, oh, but it's interesting somehow. You know, uh -huh. there's something going on, something for us to think about. So good can be found in bad. Yeah. And I mean, I think maybe what's more important is interesting. Who do you like to read as a poet? Boy, so many people. I mean, honestly, like I've been reading, I've been really enjoying Ross Gay's work. Someone who was a big influence on me uh, when I was younger, um, uh, like sort of college and the sort of decade after college was Robert Hass, uh -huh. um, who was Poet Laureate um, way back when. And um, Juliana Spar has been another really important poet for me. Um, thinking about, you know, some of the same concerns that are in this book, um, sort of politics, environment, how we identify and relate to other people. Maybe people don't realize that you can get books of poetry by contemporary poets at your local bookstore. I That's wonder right. if everybody knows that. I don't know that everybody knows that. You know, a friend of mine on uh, Facebook, someone I went to high school with, was just asking for recommendations of contemporary poets. She wanted uh -huh. to get in, more into poetry. And I was surprised um, that more people weren't familiar with more. There's so many great poets writing these days. Well, I think if, if the average person who knows a poet mm -hmm. were asked, who is that poet, they'd probably say Mary Oliver. Yep. She's, She's the big name. Mm -hmm. There are just a few that people know. Yet on the other hand, if you go into a bookstore, you'll see dozens and dozens and dozens of noted name contemporary poets. Mm -hmm. It's true. Of which you're one now. <laughs> Your first book coming I, out. I am a contemporary poet now. Yes, it's true. And not only that, an environmental activist, we've got to get into that. I've okay. got to figure yeah, that happy, out. Yeah, happy to talk about that. I understand you're also working on a book right now, and from what I can see, it's called 
Climate Violence and the Poetics of Refuge. Speaking of environmental activism, right. climate violence. Now, uh, this is based on your dissertation. And are you one of those people who knows how to say what your dissertation was? <laughs> <laughs> it's nice to hear that I'm not the only one who struggles to articulate his dissertation. Very few. Yeah, right. <laughs> I, you know, the project um, was, I sort of think about it in the terms of the two kind of parts of the title. Uh-huh. So um, climate violence, um, I'm really trying to think, one of the things I was trying to think about was the way that climate change is um, being caused, of course, by human actions. And uh-huh. it's creating a huge amount of suffering across the world already. Already. And, um, and so I thought it was important for us to think about it um, as a form of violence, as a form of, um, not, of the people in power, really, making these decisions that are causing all kinds of suffering for so many right. people. One of the major things that it's causing is lots of people to move. You know, uh-huh. we're losing the ability to inhabit many places, and yeah. that's going to keep happening more and more. I um, was thinking about some um, various different, like, cultural texts, books, plays, movies from around the world, but especially I focused in southern Louisiana, which uh-huh. is losing land at the rate of a football field an hour. Wow. And people there are trying to think about, like, what does it mean to stay in this place? Or right. do we move? And how do we relate to sort of our history in this place and the fact that we've already been forced to move in various different ways? And how do we, you know, and so I was looking at various different sort of pieces of art about that. How are people sort of making meaning of these needs to move and stay and history and all these things? So that's where the Poetics of Refuge comes in. You're now a 2019-2020 organizing fellow for a group, an organization called We Own It. Now, what does We Own It do? We Own It is a fairly new national nonprofit that works with rural electric co-ops to re-energize democratic participation in those co-ops. So Get in on it! Exactly! People in rural areas get their electricity through um, rural co-ops. Uh-huh. So if you're in a rural area in most parts of the country, 80% of the country, actually. Um, no kidding. Not in terms of um, population, but land, right. geography. You probably get your electricity through a co-op. You're probably a member of a co-op. Oh. Rather than buying your electricity from Duke or you know whatever, investor-owned utility. So that means as a member, in theory, you have the ability to help run the, the program. And so this organization um, with uh, the fellows like me um, is trying to uh, get people to recognize that they actually have more control than they um, than they think they do about they can make more decisions and participate in more decisions about their co-ops. You're an evangelist (laughs) on some level. Yeah, I'm becoming (laughs) one. Right. I didn't I uh, did not expect to be interested in rural electricity. I'm not a big electricity person. Utilities It just doesn't feel that interesting to me. Like. I find that when I'm talking with people, most of us don't really think about where the power is coming from That when we turn on our lights. It, it, right there, the plug, and that's it's coming it. from the plug. Yeah, that's, that's it. it. That's where it starts. It exists there. Exactly. And I'm, you know, I'm becoming more interested in the electricity. I am interested in environmental issues. And mm-hmm. this, I think, is one really important way to think about. Like, where we get our power is a huge part of um, you know, figuring out how we're going to live in the future. Back to Pickpocket Books, uh, yeah. which, again, is an imprint of Ledgemule Press, in your biography on the website. And by the way, that website is ledgemulepress.org. Quote, when Alex Chambers was 16, he wanted to be a professional flutist. When he was 14, he wanted to be a professional actor. When he was 10, he wanted to grow up to be a writer and teacher. 
So basically, your youngest aspiration is the one that turned out. Yeah, I think maybe you can't get away from your childhood, can you? <laughs> Are you reliving your childhood? Is that what's happening here? Maybe, yeah, yeah, yeah. What happened to music and what happened to acting? Actually, it's funny. I was just driving over here and uh, listening to, uh, there was a flute piece on the radio. Uh-huh. And um, I was thinking, you know, I just couldn't get that into the music that it, I was playing. Really? Like the flute repertoire. I loved playing music, um, but I didn't love flute music a ton. <laughs> so. I, was, uh, I, I was listening to a musician from, speaking of New Orleans. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, Shay Cohen, uh, she uh, runs a, sort of a busker band down there called Tuba Skinny, and she was a classically trained musician. And she said, I had to get out because I got sick of playing the same piece for four hours a day. Exactly, yeah. exactly. That was it for me, too. I think if I had found more ways to get into jazz and other kinds of things, yeah. I might have kept it up longer, but um, it just didn't keep my attention. So were you writing poetry as a 10-year-old? Uh, um, actually, yes. You were? I was going to say no, but I did write a couple of poems when I was 10. Yeah, some rhyming poems. <laughs> <laughs> do poems much rhyme anymore? I think there are some poets out there who do a really can manage to actually do some really interesting things with rhyme. And I still love poets whether they're older poets or contemporary, you know, writing new stuff, who are interested in the sounds of language, yeah. you know. Maybe if you're a rhyming poet, what you really are is a rapper. I do think that that's where, that's where the best rhyming is happening yeah. at this point, yeah. these days. Yeah, totally. There are a few rhymes in this book as well. Do you like to read your stuff out loud? I actually do. I do enjoy it, yeah. Well, I'm going to make you happy then. Okay. I'm going to ask you to read a poem from the new book. And again, the book is Binding a Preparation. It's, uh, is it out yet? It is out. Nah, this one isn't too long. If it's 10 minutes, then we're in trouble. Right. Okay. This is called After the Chicken, Before the Peach. <laughs> oh, that's right. There's there the chicken the and the peach. peach. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. When the chicken died, it hardened quick. The rigor knew to me, honey. The lick of the mortal, it had mostly seemed a distant trick when grandfathers quietly ceased. The air shrieks at dawn's bare light. It's the raccoon in the coop. You've got a dead hen on your hands, stiffened foot, blood on the wood wood and the beak. And you have to grasp it, because there's life in the coop, but a body's blocking the door, and the hens might feast, you've heard, on their feathery sister's soulless meat. We were close enough, I called her grandma, and we went to see her, the body, I mean, and bought takeout from my wife's mom's dad. In the long, sudden pause before the men folded away the remnants of her breath, everyone hugged her body goodbye but me. Not sure why. Maybe something in my thought of the cold. The hen, anyway, happened later. Her soul departed in the teeth of a shadow groping over a half-hooked wire fence. We dug a hole, but the saplings, peach, cherry, apple, weren't yet ready. So after I lifted her by her wooden foot and tossed her in, we dropped a limestone block on top to stop the raccoons, coyotes, or whatever interested four-leggers might rummage down for a taste. After six days of flies before lowering the trees, we lifted away the grave so the roots would reach the body, our breaths held against the smell. Well, 
You can guess how the dead, whether accidental or long expected, when you take them up in your unafraid and fearful hands, cut the sod and place them somewhere almost plenty deep, feed the trees. You can guess which tree, my peach, shot up stocky and green within weeks. Whose story am I here to tell? Hard to say. I meant for us to taste the garden's sugar, trace our tongues down to its pit, but the fruit, it's years away, probably grubby, and however we fall, whatever we feed, the spirit hovers home to hold the frenzied swarm aloft. Again, that's one of the poems from Binding a Preparation, the first book of poetry, a compilation by Alex Chambers. Is your poetry music? Some of it more so than others. Some poems more so than others, I would say. Yeah. I sensed music here. Mm-hmm. It's music, shouldn't it be? Yeah. I mean, I definitely think, you know, I mean, poem, poetry and song um, are so completely interlinked. You know, mm-hmm. I really think they exist on a continuum. You know, I think they're on some level the same thing. You know, we, we relate, I think, to them differently. You know, we don't necessarily put on, like, a, an album of poems to listen to. Like, we might not go <laughs> dancing to, to add a poetry reading. Has, have there ever been poetry albums? I wonder. I think so. There have been. Um, I don't know that they've been, you know, bestsellers. But, um, <laughs> but I do think, like, I think Allen Ginsberg probably did some. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, others, others in that era. What's the better way to take in the poetry of Alex Chambers, to read it or to listen to it? Obviously, you want people to buy the book. (laughs) Yeah, buy the book. So let's, yeah, that's the best (laughs) way, totally, totally. But uh, given your druthers... Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I do think there's great value in listening. I always love being able to hear, you know, a poet read their um, work. I find that I understand their work a lot better. And so, like, I'll go to a reading... And I'll hear someone read, and then I'll get their book and read their poems, and I like I can connect to their poems in a really different way. So I love the idea of people listening, you know, to to the poems in this book. The poem called "Preparations," which uh, weaves throughout this whole book, as a sort of spoken in a collective voice. It's this we, who is sort of identifying on some level, trying to identify with everyone in the world globally. Although at the same time, it's a couple who's sort of preparing for the birth of their first child. So I asked some friends to record that first poem for me. And um, my plan for this um, launch is I'm going to weave together a bunch of different voices and play the recording of people who are not me reading this poem. No kidding. So I like the idea of all kinds of voices, these poems being in all kinds of voices. Although I also will say, listening to uh, my friends read the poem, I'm like, oh, wait, that, that's, not, that's not right. That's not right. <laughs> oh, you artists. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. Hey, by the way, if you're interested in uh, seeing some of Alex Chambers' stuff, uh, you can go online uh, for the Poetry Journal's Gulf Coast, Laurel Review, Forklift, Ohio, Paper Darts, Leveler. I found a couple of good ones on Leveler. Yeah. Yeah. The Rumpus. I love that title. (laughs) Yeah, The Rumpus is a good, um, I have poetry, I have a couple poetry reviews on The Rumpus from a, a while back. And Shampoo also is another online journal where I have um, at least one poem, I think a small handful. You mean I didn't find them all? And no, apparently you didn't. Oh, gosh, I'm so <laughs> disappointed in myself. I also, um, one of the poems in this book, I was actually really, this is, it's a small thing, but I was really sort of proud the, um, 
Uh, it was published in The Land Report, which is a publication of um, the Land Institute, which is Wes Jackson's institute in Kansas, where he's trying to create, he's trying to revolutionize agriculture and create a perennial agriculture, basically, perennial, grow, like develop a perennial wheat and all kinds of other things huh. so we don't have to till the soil and right. all kinds of reasons. But I've been an admirer of his work for a long time, and I wrote a poem sort of in tribute to, to his work and sent it to them, and they published it in their little <laughs> annual <laughs> report. So that was kind of actually nice. You, as we said earlier, have been in prison. I have. But you chose to go there. Yes. Why? When I was working on my MFA, um, I came into contact with a prison education program that was being run out of Auburn University um, in Alabama. And Kaya Stevens is the person who runs it. It's called the Alabama Prison Arts and Education Project. Hmm. She was um, offering people the opportunity to go teach in prisons. I pestered her for about a year or two to, um, to get her to let me teach in the, in the program. Why did I want to do it? Prison is a huge part of life for so many people in our country. And I wanted to have some sense of, of what that involved. I, you know, am maybe among the privileged few, I don't know, who actually doesn't have a lot of connections to people who've had to go to prison, like right. my family or whatever. So I didn't really have any exposure to that. So I wanted to have the opportunity to, um, to do that and get to know the people there. Some of my best teaching experiences happened there. I had great classes. I taught at one of the prisons I taught at was a high security prison. So you were getting people to write poetry? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, people were choosing to come to the class. Right. And it was a privilege for them to come. Yeah. And um, and yeah, we were writing poetry. We were writing sort of cultural history and personal stories and all kinds of things. And I met some really wonderful people there, really wise and thoughtful I mean, people who had really had to face really hard stuff yeah, and deal with the fact that they were in kind of awful circumstances, some of them indefinitely, you know, oh, some of them yeah. possibly to the end of their lives. And so they had, you know, developed certain kinds of spiritual and other things, um, ways to cope. Right. I'm not, I do not want to say that I think that that's a better way to go, you know, but, um, it was but I way. think it was the way that they had been forced to. And, and I learned a lot from, from them. Philip Meters, uh, in his book, he's a poet, yes. and you're going to tell us a little bit more about him, but he, he wrote a book called The Sound of Listening, Poetry as Refuge and Resistance. And in that book, he talks about an exchange between you and him. You told him about your experiences teaching writing workshops in prison. You said to him, basically, that prisoners preferred first-person lyrical poetry, but Meters was talking about documentary poetry as an agent for change. Now, if I may, I'm going to read part of what Meters wrote, and then you can tell me who Meters was. Meters said, If we poets are interested in poetry as a mode of social change, then we must be attuned to the needs and goals of the communities with which they work. So you were saying that the prisoners wanted things that referred to themselves and their experiences, and they wanted to fly like birds as poets. But Meters says, you better talk in the language of the people to get them to change. Who is Philip Meters? 
Uh, Phil Meters is a poet um, and scholar. I think he was in Ohio when I first was in touch with him about 10 years ago. He wrote a piece about documentary poetry, I think, on the Poetry Foundation website that I had read. And I think I must have gotten in touch with him about that. He also uh, graduated from IU. He did his MFA here years ago, and I think a PhD as well. At the time, I was um, working with my students there to introduce them to this mode of documentary poetry, which is an approach to writing poems that isn't just about um, sort of the self and relationships and right. perception and you know emotion but is um, also attuned to um, looking out into the world and actually maybe trying to inform people a bit about what's going on, whether it's about, you know, large-scale political things and trying to, you know, think through those or actually having a record of one form of struggle or suffering or another. Poetry as politics. Exactly, exactly. So I was trying to introduce my students to that, and I thought, well, the prison seems like a really good place, to, an important place to be documenting what's, what's going on, and maybe poetry can be a, an avenue for that. They weren't really interested. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I think uh, for legitimate reasons, I didn't really you know, think about where they were coming from. They wanted to write these more first-person poems because, um, A, I think they had a particular idea of what poetry was, mm-hmm. of what poems were. And um, they wanted to learn to do what they were thinking of as poetry, which is totally legit. But also they wanted to think about their own lives. Right. You know, like I was I was like, oh, well, there's this injustice and prisons and so on (laughs) and so forth. And they're like, you know, living their lives and they're there. They're there. And yeah, they don't feel the need to report about it. They want to talk about their relationships and their, you know, kids who are on the outside or their, you know, friends or the people they were in love with or whatever. All the things that so many of us are always thinking about. Could it be possible that what you were experiencing was the childhood of a poet? And as they continued to write poetry, they might grow into an adolescence and then an adulthood as a poet. And as an adult, you go out into the world. Yeah, I mean, I think that's possible, though I do think that, you know, the best poets... Is this, do I really think any statement about quote unquote the best poets? <laughs> um, I think the poets that I admire the most, let's put it that way, are always sort of moving back and forth between their own sort of personal experience and exploration of their personal experience and or their relationship to the world and trying to document something big in the world. How do you write? What are your tools? I guess I usually start with a notebook. Ideally, I'll get up early in the morning and spend some time writing and sort of let things unfold, you know, figure out what I'm thinking about at the time. I definitely don't come into it with a sense of like, this is the poem that I want to write. I'm sort of like taking notes and letting mm-hmm. those notes sort of develop into something and see what happens. Well, could, <laughs> could you write poetry using a keyboard? I think I've probably composed some, but I do think that would be harder. Ah. I do write, I I write prose, you know, on the computer all the time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But no, I do think it would be harder to write a poem. It depends on the kind of poem. You know, I could see um, writing like maybe sort of more documentary poetry, Mm -hmm. you know, developing something like that on a computer. That seems feasible to me. But maybe not. Most of these poems were definitely in a notebook. If you're not doing anything, Saturday night, December 14th, there's a neat book launch party. It's at 7 p.m., at the Eiffel Gallery for the first book by our guest, Alex Chambers. He's a poet and environmental activist. The book is called Binding a Preparation. It's been published by 
Pickpocket Books, which is an imprint of Ledgemule Press. Alex, thanks for being on Big Talk. So glad to be here. Thank you, Michael. Michael.